I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. Amazon is one of the country's most iconic companies, owned by the world's richest man, Jeff Bezos. But even while consumers stuck at home during the COVID-19 pandemic are becoming increasingly reliant on Amazon and its stock price soars while the economy craters, the firm is enmeshed in controversy. Workers in more than 100 of its warehouses have tested positive for the virus, and many of them have no sick leave or health insurance. We'll talk to two Amazon whistleblowers who were fired for trying to call attention to conditions at the company. And we'll talk to Gary Locke, the former U.S. ambassador to China, who bizarrely found himself in a recent Donald Trump campaign commercial on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So it's really interesting the way we got onto this Amazon story. The news broke last week that an Amazon vice president resigned in protest over what was going on at the company. I actually reached out to that guy and said, hey, come on our podcast and talk about it. And he said, no, you don't want to talk to me. You want to talk to the whistleblowers whose firing I protested. And uh, he turned me on to Emily Cunningham and Mara Costa. We're going to have them as guests in a moment. And they have quite a story to tell. Yeah, I mean, it's unusual for a uh, tech executive to say that, you know, he doesn't want the spotlight <laughs> to give it to someone else. Right. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this guy is is interesting, and I think we should have him on at some point now that we've had Marin and, and Emily. I'm just going to read very quickly what he said in his blog post about and why And this is he, Tim... Uh, his name is uh, Tim, Bray. Tim Bray. His name is Tim Bray. Right. He's an Amazon... He was an Amazon vice president and senior engineer, and he quit in solidarity after they were fired. And he he said very simply... Remaining an Amazon VP would have meant, in effect, signing off on actions I despised. Yeah, pretty pretty, pretty strong, strong stuff. stuff. And I got to say, there's a certain symmetry to this episode of Skullduggery. We're going to talk to Emily and Marin about why they were fired. And it, technically, it was because they violated the company's uh, internal policy on external communications, which forbid, uh, according to press reports, Amazon employees from saying anything that is disparaging or reflects badly on Amazon. It's kind of reminiscent of China, which we'll be talking to Gary Locke about the way they do business there. Uh, you uh, disparage the 
the Chinese Communist Party and you suffer consequences. So uh, I don't think uh, Jeff Bezos will appreciate having his company compared to the Chinese Communist Party, but there is a parallel there that uh, leapt out at me. And soon Amazon will be bigger than China. So, <laughs> quite. A, hey, listen. Before we uh, we get to this, we do have to take note of some big news this week, and that was uh, Attorney General Barr's sign off on a filing dismissing the case against Michael Flynn, Donald Trump's first national security advisor. It was not what a lot of us were expecting out of this, uh, or maybe we just hadn't thought through or listened closely enough to what Bill Barr was saying, but it was a pretty extraordinary move for the Justice Department to drop a case against somebody who had twice, under oath, pled guilty to the crime for which he was charged. I'm not aware of any precedent of that happening. And, uh, you know, but this does fit a pattern. Um, We uh, talked on this podcast about the uh, Justice Department calling for a much lighter sentence, uh, a much lighter sentence in in the case of uh, Roger Stone. By the way, in both of these cases, the career prosecutors withdrew from the cases when when they found out that these things were happening, essentially in protest. Uh, and the, the sort of uh, lone standing prosecutor on the case was a guy named Tim Shea, who is the acting U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C., was installed there by Barr, his friend and um, someone who uh, had worked for Barr all the way back in the first Bush administration, which you and I covered. So (laughs) there's a lot of symmetry in these these cases. Yeah, look, uh, the case is not over yet because Judge Emmett Sullivan does have to sign off on the motion to dismiss. And I was there in the court house over a year ago when Flynn went for his sentencing hearing. We all thought he was going to be sentenced and it got held up. Uh, Judge Sullivan wasn't totally satisfied with what he had seen from all the parties, but he reamed out Flynn and basically uh, described his conduct as uh, treasonous. Uh, I think words that he sort of went a little bit further than the facts showed, but he gave Flynn a chance to withdraw his plea then. Flynn declined to do so. Since then, he got new lawyers. Uh, They got new documents under discovery that um, the Justice Department concluded raised questions about the original decision to question Flynn, whether he had been set up at the White House. Basically, the argument was that the FBI was on the verge of formally dropping its investigation of Flynn, and therefore there was not an adequate predicate to do the interview which he in which he lied about his conversations with the Russian ambassador. The response to that from the uh, former FBI people I've talked to is, look, we were doing an investigation of what the Russians were up to and their possible links to the Trump campaign. Then we see Flynn having these conversations with Kislyak, the ambassador. We see the vice president of the United States lying about what we knew took place during those conversations. And that was more than adequate justification to go and do the interview. We'll see how Judge Sullivan uh, handles this and whether he wants an inquiry and whether he's going to ask 
this top is questions a, of the Justice Department. Yeah, this is a, a Rorschach's test. I mean, for those people who view the Mueller investigation and all of the Russia stuff, you know, as a hoax, you know, you, you look at the Flynn case um, through different uh, eyes. Um, if you see it as I think a lot of people in law enforcement see it as, as there was a lot of smoke there and a lot of reason for investigation and a real predicate for investigation, then the fact that, you know, Flynn explicitly lied to them is a crime and a serious one. So, look, I covered Emmett Sullivan when he was a D.C. Superior Court judge back in the 80s, and he was a tough judge back then, could be pretty ornery and could be very tough on the government. So I would not be shocked if he does not sign off on this, if he orders an inquiry, if he raises real questions about the legal foundation um, for the Justice Department's action. I think it's going to be an interesting hearing. to Yeah, watch look, I mean, there was, a, you be. know, Barr assigned this uh, U.S. attorney out in St. Louis, uh, Jensen, to do the review. And he recommended, according to Barr, he was Jensen who recommended the uh, dismissal. I would not be shocked if uh, Sullivan wants to hear directly from Jensen on this and who knows maybe he'll ask uh, Bill Barr to come into the courtroom to answer some questions about uh, how this played out but uh, which in which case I I hope I will be there in uh, I may perhaps a a post-COVID world if it's not uh, if it's not on the phone (laughs) but let's get to Amazon and Ambassador Locke uh, a lot to talk about here so let's get on with it. All right. We now have with us Emily Cunningham and Marin Costa, two Amazon employees or former Amazon employees who got some considerable attention last month when they were fired by Amazon for trying to call the public's attention to some of Amazon's policies, particularly as they related to COVID-19. Emily and Marin, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much for having us. It's great to be here. There's so much to talk about here and obviously so much attention on Amazon since we're all relying on Amazon to get goods that we can't go out and buy now because of the um, social distancing and other restrictions. Emily and Marin, tell us why you were fired by Amazon. Yeah, well, actually, the story goes back about a year and a half. Uh, Marin and I are both part of a group called Amazon Employees for Climate Justice. And we started off actually um, pressuring the company around climate change because we know that Amazon has an incredible opportunity to really drive the global economy to get off of fossil fuels. And so it actually started a year and a half ago. And it started with us just talking to our coworkers. And the kind of conversations we were having, we also saw that people were also very alarmed, very concerned, and also saw similarly that Amazon had a great opportunity to lead around the climate crisis. So when we first met with them a year and a half ago in January 2019, Amazon wasn't even willing to release its carbon footprint at that time. Fast forward nine months later, after continued pressure from employees, so there was 9,000 of us that publicly signed our name and title to an open letter asking Bezos and the board for climate leadership. And this came from all levels of the company, from the the lowest level employee up into the VP level that signed this letter. 
You went from that to the, the over 3,000 of us around the world walking out as part of the global climate strike. The very day before we walked out, which was, by the way, the first time in Amazon's history that tech workers had walked out, Amazon announced the climate pledge, which was a huge victory for um, workers being able to stand up collectively for the kind of leadership that we wanted. So actually, while sort of the final straw was really around COVID, speaking up about COVID, Amazon had wanted us to, you know, had been wanting us gone for quite some time. Martin and I were both warned in the fall about speaking out about Amazon's role in the climate crisis. But it wasn't just Marn and I. There were dozens of us who gave public interviews and quotes. And uh, But our, actually, Marin was given, we both were spoken to by HR. But Marin, do you want to talk a little bit about the letter that you got following that? I think Emily mentioned that we were both contacted by lawyers and HR when we spoke to the press. So that was uh, technically breaking the external communications policy. And so we were both contacted and warned that we had done that. Can I break in there? What What is this external communications policy? It's a policy that basically another important fact here is that, again, there are dozens of us that had spoken to the media and on record. But the day after we announced our participation in the global climate strike, we announced it internally on September 4th. The very next day, September 5th, Amazon conveniently, quote, updates their external communications policy. And basically, this is a policy that says that you need to go through um, the VP of the business that you're speaking about, and it can take up to, to two weeks, and that you need basically permission to talk about different things. And none of what we were talking about was confidential information. This was all public information. Amazon itself has a, a website devoted to marketing to oil and gas companies on how to optimize production and productivity of oil companies getting oil and gas out of the ground. So they're not secretive about this. This is never about confidential information. And we've always maintained that Amazon cannot own the conversations that affect our very existence, that, that affect life and death, which is both the climate crisis and this COVID pandemic that we're in the middle of. Okay, Marin, you were about to tell us the email that you get about the external communications policy. After Emily and I were both contacted by HR, I then subsequently received an email that said, if I continued to break policies, I could face consequences up to and including being fired. And just to be clear, this policy is you cannot say anything about anything at Amazon unless you get prior approval from your, who, manager, corporate, yeah. approval at the VP level and you can't even talk at you know conferences like as designers we wouldn't even be allowed to talk at a design conference without getting VP approval for whatever it was we were going to talk about but Emily uh, did you say that this was a a new policy and that prior to this you both of you had sp and others had spoken to the media without consequence yeah basically it was they updated the policy supposedly to make it more streamlined but it really gave them cover to be able to enforce this policy, which they weren't enforcing before, because it's not a good look for Amazon to come after employees who are merely trying to have the company do better around the most urgent, time-sensitive issue in our lifetimes. And so an another thing to say about this is that 
other tech workers were totally in support of us around this. So they saw the success that we had had, you know, thousands of us speaking out and, and raising our voices because, you know, before we did this, Amazon wasn't moving out of the top 10 retailers. Amazon was the only one who hadn't even released its carbon footprint. And so in January, we went public with the story that Amazon was trying to silence us. And by the way, they came after the two of us. There were 13 of us that spoke on record to the media after the external communication policy was, quote unquote, updated in September. Yet people still did that. And they came after Marin and I. But in, in January, we went public with the Washington Post about Amazon's attempts to silence workers, Marin and I. But what we did a couple of weeks after that was we had 400 tech employees, knowing that Marin had been warned with termination, warned with being fired, and they mass defied the external communication policy together. So there are 400 tech employees who wrote and gave quotes publicly that are now published on our Medium page. So just to be a final beat on this external uh, communications policy, I'm looking at an account in the Washington Post about your firing, in which quotes a Amazon spokesman, Drew Herdner, saying you both repeatedly violated internal policies, the external communication policy being one of them. And he said that the policy forbids employees from saying anything that would, quote, publicly disparage or misrepresent the company. So basically, you're not allowed as an Amazon employee to say anything that would reflect badly on Amazon. Well, actually, not according to Amazon's own external communications policy, um, we can talk about working conditions and also whistleblowing is allowed, as are other things under the law. So what are you not allowed to do? Well, we they would be saying in this case that talking about Amazon's carbon footprint and the, the contribution that it plays to the climate crisis is something that we can't talk about. And that's where, like, as a mom, I have kids, I have a hard time imagining their future unless we quickly get our entire world on a better path. And Amazon is a part of that. And we don't believe that corporations should be able to own or control the kind of conversations that need to be had about existential issues and matters of life and death, whether that's the climate crisis or safety for workers in the warehouses during COVID, or even outside of COVID for that matter. Okay, so bringing it up to now, you were not fired, you were warned, but you were not fired in the wake of your having spoken out to the Washington Post a year ago. But you believe that just now when you were fired that it was retaliatory for what you did back then and then the organizing that you were doing around COVID. Tell, just bring us to where we are now. Sure. Amazon has said that we broke multiple policies. And so the first one was, again, around speaking up around the climate crisis. And the second one was what they're calling its, quote unquote, no solicitation policy. Now, this is a policy that is broken every day where people don't even realize it. When your teammates sent out emails saying, hey, my daughter is buying Girl Scout cookies, please come get some. That is also violating the, this no solicitation policy, but no one ever says anything about that. But what we did was we forwarded an email that had a link to a petition from Amazon warehouse workers asking for greater safety protections. And that was the pretext that we were given for why they fired us, which Tim Bray, who was the Amazon VP who resigned 
over the firing of whistleblowers like Marin and I and other warehouse workers said that the justification was laughable, which it is. Um, so the thing that actually got us fired, so th this happened actually that we forwarded an email with a link to a warehouse petition around safety conditions. That happened actually two weeks prior to the day that we actually got fired. We got fired on Good Friday, which was April 10th, and another employee from Amazon Employees for Climate Justice, which is the group that we're part of, sent out a calendar invite. And this was gonna be an event for warehouse workers to be able to speak honestly and openly about the real conditions that they're facing on the ground. Why is it that they're feeling so unsafe? Why are they feeling so afraid right now? And this was going to be a chance for them to talk about, these are the things that aren't working. Yes, Amazon has been rolling out some safety me measures, but it's, it's this is what actually is happening. So when that calendar went out, went out, a couple of things happened. Within two hours, Marin and I were terminated, even though we didn't actually even send out that calendar invite. They blamed right. it on the thing that happened two weeks prior. And within those two hours, this was sent out on a Friday afternoon, you know, before the weekend on the West Coast. So most of the East Coast had knocked out for the day. Our European offices, Hyderabad, didn't even get a chance to see it. But there were 1,500 Amazon employees who had accepted this invite, who were incredibly engaged and wanted to hear from warehouse workers. But not only did Amazon fire Martin and I, but they went in and deleted the calendar invite so that people couldn't even know that it was happening or, or learn more about it. This was supposed to be a like a, a virtual town hall of some sort where Amazon workers could air their concerns about working conditions, right? Yeah, it was a, a live stream event where we had um, warehouse workers and tech workers in the same forum with Naomi Klein as a, as a special guest. But the main purpose was for tech workers to be able to hear from warehouse workers live about what their experiences were in the warehouse. So let's let's talk about that, because I think that's what a lot of us are wondering about. Clearly, Amazon's business has skyrocketed since the pandemic hit us. I also noticed that its stock price is up 28 percent since the start of the year, $2,374 per share. So while other while the American economy is cratering, Amazon is uh, raking up more more and more business. What can you tell us about what this has meant for conditions in the warehouses where people fulfill all those orders all of us are placing for Amazon goods? Well, a big thing that we're hearing from warehouse workers is around transparency. I mean, if you think about it, like how would you feel if in your workplace you weren't told until eight days later that there was a positive case in your work environment? Or if you worked an entire day, you worked your entire shift, and you weren't told until the end of your day that there was positive COVID tests in your workplace. So we're hearing that this is happening from workers, and Amazon has even admitted that it won't tell workers the total number of COVID cases. So imagine that you work somewhere and you're told that there, there are cases, but you have no way of knowing, is that 2,000 cases, is that 200? So you don't have any way of assessing the amount of risk. We're also seeing in the United States, we've heard from workers from all over the world, but obviously in the United States where people's health care are dependent on their employer, many, many warehouse workers don't have um, health insurance. Uh, many of them are part-time workers or, or contract workers. 
and they don't have those kind of um, that kind of health insurance and they don't have the sick leave that they need. You don't get health insurance as an Amazon employee? It's very, very extremely limited and it depends on whether or not you're part time versus full time. Yeah, you need to be an Amazon Blue Badge employee. And that's the small percentage of the number of workers there. Most of them are white badge, which means you're either contract or part-time, and you don't have access to the same level of benefits that a full-time For the record, Marin and Emily, what is the state of kind of labor organizing at Amazon? Is there a union? Do people have any rights to organize there? Amazon is vehemently anti-union. Amazon actively tries to break up any attempts at unionization. And that's part of why they were so threatened by the phone call, the the live stream that we were trying to set up, which was not just tech workers organizing and not just warehouse workers organizing, but tech workers and warehouse workers organizing together. And that's what was so threatening. And they were already threatened by Emily and I because we were the most visible leaders of Amazon employees for climate justice. But when that conversation came out and they were re- they realized the level of organization that was happening, that's what made them censor the event, fire Emily and I, and try to shut down the entire conversation. This, we're talking about the United States, but in Europe, um, warehouse workers, there are unions in Europe, and they've actually been effective in holding the, the company accountable. So this happened in France, where workers took to the courts saying that this what that they were in danger and the public was in danger and Amazon or the court sided with workers and said yes this is a dangerous work environment and Amazon can only sell essential products um, because otherwise it put these workers and the public in too much risk Amazon tried to appeal this and the courts dismissed it on April 24th and didn't I didn't I read Emily that some of the warehouses in France have actually been temporarily shut down so that they can be sanitized and cleaned to protect workers and presumably if they're unionized then the workers are actually being paid while that's happening. They're being paid, yes. But it's uh, workers in the United States particularly who are who are very very vulnerable because of the lack of protections that they have. I just want to ask about what we know about the extent of COVID in Amazon warehouses. I've seen estimates of up to 130 warehouses have employees who have tested positive. Can you tell us, bring us up to date on what your best information is on the number of warehouses where there's been a COVID presence and how many workers we're talking about who have gotten the virus? The sad answer to that question is that that it's it's actually really hard to find. Amazon, despite being known as a very data-centric company, they always have the numbers, the percentages, the whatever it is. When it comes to how many cases of COVID in the warehouses and how many warehouses that have uh, positive cases, they don't seem to want to come forward with those numbers at all. It's workers who who are trying to bring forward the numbers and trying to make known or, or investigative journalists who are trying to uncover this data. And what is your best information right now on how extensive it is? Well, I, I think, I mean, that's what Marin is basically raising is that it's really hard to know that number. We heard from Amazon, I think it was a week and a half ago, the Business Insider reported that Amazon itself admitted that there had been 30 COVID positive cases in a warehouse in New Jersey. So if Amazon is really doing everything it can to keep workers safe, 
how, how do you explain that amount of positive cases on that kind of scale? And we're hearing from workers and in the Staten Island uh, warehouse, which is where Chris Smalls was fired, that there's 50 cases there, at least 50 cases. And again, if Amazon isn't telling workers how many cases, like let's say that they report at the end of a shift after everyone has already worked, how many cases that there are, but you don't have any way of knowing, is that two, is that 22? It's really, really difficult. And I think that's one of the main issues that warehouse workers are experiencing right now. And I do also wanna say that like in the same facility, just earlier this week, we had a warehouse worker die of COVID-19. And this is at the same facility that you had people like Chris Smalls trying to speak up. Yeah. And I, I wanted to ask you about Chris Smalls because uh, we talked a lot about transparency and he was a an Amazon worker, I think, in the in a Staten Island warehouse. And that was his his main concern was the lack of transparency there. And according to the New York Times, there was an Amazon worker named Barbara Chandler who tested positive, but was told by HR to keep it on the down low. And then the other thing about Smalls that I want to get you guys to react to was some notes from the general counsel of Amazon, and I think a vice president there named David Zapolsky, that was leaked to Vice. And I'm going to read this to you. David Zapolsky, in his notes, said, he's not smart, this is referring to Chris Smalls, or he's not smart or articulate, and to the extent the press wants to focus on us versus him, we will be in a much stronger PR position than explaining for the umpteenth time how we're trying to protect workers. They wanted to make him, quote, the face of the entire organizing union movement. So tell us about Chris Smalls and about how Amazon treated him and has uh, tried to make him the face of the of the union movement. I think it's important to, to point out that Chris Smalls is a black man. And for an SVP general counsel, the highest lawyer in the company, to use that kind of demeaning, racially coded, awful, appalling language is just completely unacceptable. And so while Chris Smalls, Marn, and I were fired, David Zabolski still has his job, even after using that kind of language toward an employee and, and, and trying to organize a smear campaign against him. That, by the way, this isn't a meeting where Jeff Bezos and other high executives were. And, and I actually spoke out about that in one of our internal email lists. And I said, this kind of racism is completely unacceptable. Now, uh, just for the record, uh, we, we should say that Amazon says that he was fired for endangering the health of people at this warehouse because he had been exposed to someone who had the virus, was supposed to be quarantining, but came back and led a protest at the warehouse. I don't know what your response to that is, but... That response is that there were managers that were exposed to the same employee. I mean, Chris, um, Cory Booker, Senator Booker, also write, wrote an email to Amazon ex trying, having them trying to explain, how do you explain the dates here? This person was first got exposed at this date. There were all of these employees around this, um, this worker, and yet Chris Malls is the only one who's somehow coincidentally gets put on quarantine, who also just happens to be the person that's speaking out about safety conditions. So why weren't those managers put on leave? Why weren't all of those other employees also mm -hmm. put on leave? Why weren't they put on leave immediately 
when they first learned about that COVID case, I saw videos of that Staten Island cafeteria with like just people packed together. I mean, just utterly packed together, like and some other kind of like, you know, social event that they had where where that employee was present. People were all around each other. And so that's just like just like uh, Tim said about the firing of Martin and I, the justifications for that are laughable. It's mm -hmm. spurious charges, spurious, vague charges that could be applied to many more people, you know, for doing the same things. Yet they're applied to the most visible leaders of dissent, the loudest voices, um, asking for Amazon to be better. And those are the voices that are being silenced. Those are the people that are being fired. Now, I should point out here that neither of you are warehouse workers at Amazon. I've seen you described in stories as principal user experience designers. I'm not sure exactly what that is. Um, so yes, Koff, I, you I, work for a technology company. You're supposed to know what that is. <laughs> well, I, uh, <laughs> I'm not in that part of the company. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Tell us what a, a user experience designer is. Just to clarify, I, I am a user experience designer, but I'm not a principal user experience oh. designer. Marin was actually two levels ahead of me in the company and actually was the first principal UX designer in the company's history. And she developed these processes around user-centric design that are still being used at the company to this day. So she's had a, an incredibly influential mark on Amazon with her brilliance and her design skills. So I am actually, you know, I actually probably wouldn't have reached out to Marin originally if we hadn't had this sort of exchange over email that that's, that's a whole other story, but because I respected and looked up to her so much. Yeah, just tell us very briefly what a user experience designer does. User experience designers are the, the connection between the user and the technology and the business. So a user, user experience designer needs to take into account what is technically feasible, what is financially viable, and then bring to it what will the customer love. And so it takes empathy, it takes creativity, and it takes the ability to, to really function and negotiate across, across those different functionalities to bring the best customer experience possible to the user while maintaining the viability and the feasibility, the technical feasibility and the, the business viability. Okay, I have, a, I have a couple of questions on this because I think it, I want to make what I think will be an important point here. Folks like you that work at Amazon headquarters, in your case, worked at Amazon headquarters, do they have the option of working from home the way Clydeman and I are doing this podcast from our homes? Absolutely. And that's one of the greatest differences that we've seen um, in the treatment of warehouse workers versus the corporate right. you know, tech workers. The minute on the, on the South Lake Union campus here in Seattle, the minute there was one positive case of COVID, the entire campus was shut down and everyone was sent home. Compare that to the warehouses where we don't even know how many cases. And so fair to say that the tech employees at headquarters, like yourselves, are more likely to be higher paid workers than the people working in those warehouses. And do they have the option of working from home if they're working in a warehouse? Amazon no. for a while was, you know, normally and when we're not in a pandemic, Amazon, you're not allowed to have even unpaid time off. And 
if you do that, then you can lose your job. But during the pandemic, Amazon made it possible for warehouse workers to have unpaid time off. So let's say that you have diabetes or your kids have asthma or you live with your older parents or, or you're just really afraid, given what the conditions are at the warehouses, of contracting this deadly virus. Um, you would have the option to not be paid, but still not lose your job. And they just took that away May 1st. Yeah, I I was just going to say, I mean, even if you, you know, you're an hourly worker in in a warehouse and you're given unpaid leave, I mean, most of them wouldn't be able to afford that anyway. Exactly. It would be very difficult. But some, you know, choice. it's really a false choice to say uh, you can take a day off if you don't feel like coming in. But for someone to have to choose between putting food on the table and, and risking their health to go into the warehouse and risking their family's health is not really a choice. Another point I think I want to raise here is that, you know, I was just reading on um, some, an engineer posted something on LinkedIn about how his team had invented this new AI technology around social distancing. You know, I think one of the things that's great about working at a tech company is that people are really into the technology. But what really needs to happen is for Amazon to listen to employees. And what you find is that we don't need these complicated artificial intelligence solutions. We need workers to be able to have the sick leave that they need. Think about how much of this problem would be solved if warehouse workers, at the first sign of them having any symptoms, would be able to have the sick leave that they need to stay home. For until Amazon was pressured by 15 attorneys general saying to the company, you're sick, the requirement to for, for warehouse workers to have a positive COVID test before being able to have sick leave is not only dangerous for those workers, but for the larger public. And so it wasn't until those attorneys generals said that, that Amazon then shifted and said, okay, you need to have a diagnosis from a doctor. But if you're a low-wage worker and you don't have health insurance, going to a doctor is hundreds of dollars, and they might not even be able to diagnose you with COVID as well. And even when the company is putting workers on quarantine themselves, workers are still having trouble getting paid. Um, You know, the first case of COVID was a warehouse worker. It took the New York Times calling Amazon saying, this worker has been trying for a month to get paid and hasn't gotten a a paycheck. And uh, this this one this was a person that actually even had the COVID testing when we know there's never been widespread testing available in the United States. And it took a New York Times journalist asking Amazon before they would get a check in the mail to this worker. You know, I got to say, just listening to the two of you, that nothing sort of brings home the inequities in American society than the structure here you're describing at Amazon, where high-paid executives and tech workers can work from home and not expose themselves to COVID while lower-paid workers in warehouses are suffering from exposure. What does this tell us about Amazon as a company? I think that it's, it's really interesting because in the really early days, of Amazon when Amazon was a lot smaller and a lot newer and kind of a fresh-faced, you know, ingenue on the scene. Tech workers used to fly to Fernley, Nevada at uh, the Christmas peak season and stand shoulder to shoulder with warehouse workers and pick and package and ship the packages right alongside them. Jeff even would would go to the warehouses and do the same thing. That just so that stopped happening a long time ago. Now Amazon is like two different companies. It's like completely siloed 
you have kind of like the haves and the have-nots, and there is no no bridges in between. It's like we don't even. There's eight thousand people that work at Amazon. We don't know anything about that vast majority that are not the white-collar workers. They they are intentionally kept separate. It's like we wouldn't even think of them as Amazonians, and that's why the people like Emily and I who have that privilege to be able to either take a day off, like we had a sick out. I don't know if you guys know about that, but that was one of the things we organized. But to be able to take a day off or to be able to stand up and risk getting fired and not have to worry about putting food on the table the next day. You know, people in, the, in those positions of privilege have even more responsibility to stand up when they see something that's not right. I think that there's an important point here, though, about the the, the most vulnerable and you know, the climate crisis, like the pandemic, we're seeing that the most vulnerable among us are the are the ones paying the highest price. So uh, disproportionately, tribal communities, black people, brown people are all disproportionately um, being killed by both the climate crisis and this global pandemic. And, you know, there we're talking about systemic racism here, too, in that you know, the people that are, are dying at, at highest rates, indigenous people and black people, are the ones that are on the front lines. And a, a disproportionate amount of people in Amazon warehouses are people of color. And, you know, when you look at the systemic racism, you know, Amazon as a company has not done a diversity and inclusion report that breaks out, you know, corporate from warehouse workers. So when you lump all, all together, it makes it look like Amazon is doing a much better job than it is around having unrepresented minorities be represented in among tech workers. And you look at the S team, which is the senior leadership team. There are 22 people on this team. Most are white men. We have three women. Until recently, it was just one woman. And then you have an Asian man in the United States and an Asian man in India. But the rest are white men. And so it brings up all kinds of issues around inequity and racism, um, you know, throughout our world, but definitely in this company. Marin, you uh, you made reference a minute ago to Jeff. I assume that's Bezos, the owner of uh, and founder of Amazon. He also is a guy who owns the Washington Post. Their motto is democracy dies in darkness. He's uh, rhetorically committed to transparency. How do you explain Bezos taking this kind of hard line on his own workers and square that with the principles one presumes he believes in through his ownership of uh, one of the country's leading newspapers? I think it's kind of, it's, it actually saddens me. Um, the Jeff that I knew and worked with and went to meetings with um, in the early days was not the Jeff, I don't think, that would do this, do what he's doing today. And I think, I don't know if it's that he's just increasingly more and more out of touch with his employees, uh, with his warehouse worker employees, or just with humanity in general. Yeah, I've got two kind of follow-up questions to that. One is, did you go to the Washington Post intentionally because the Post is owned by Bezos? Was that a statement that you were making? No, they came to us. The second question about Bezos himself, I I sort of wonder, you know, because I was going to ask you, like, what do you think is driving these policies, this kind of callousness that you perceive towards his own workers. And it could be simply greed. 
it could be this sort of idea, you know, one of the things that, you know, if you order from Amazon, as we all do all the time and come to depend on Amazon, is it's amazing customer service. I mean, the packages always arrive and they almost always arrive on time and they come incredibly quickly. And there is this kind of customer centric philosophy that Amazon has. And I wonder if there's a, a way in which that, that that has come at the expense of, of workers, their health, their well-being. It is kind of a customer-centric philosophy, you know, kind of run amok. I think it has. I think there's a certain, you know, myopicness there that it, even when we were trying to get Amazon to change for the better to become a climate leader, we were making the case that this was that being a climate leader was not just good for Amazon, it was good for customers and it was good for the world as a whole. It met all of the checkboxes that Amazon would normally say, especially the customer uh, checkbox that Amazon would normally support. But they didn't want it. We, we, had, we ran into dead ends and, and deafening silence when we tried to talk about the climate crisis because I don't think there's actually, I, I think the customer has come to stand when 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 you hear Amazon recite over and over again, we're doing this for the customer, I say substitute the word profit in for customer and the sentences will work out exactly the same. So last question for both of you, if you had a chance right now to talk to Jeff Bezos and say something to him, what would it be? Emily, you go first and then Marn. Listen to your workers. Listen, listen, listen. Don't fire us when we bring up concerns, but really deeply listen to what we have to say. We're saying these things because we care about each other and we care about the company. And Maren and I have always done this kind of work because we believe in the power of Amazon to shift whole industries in the right direction, both around climate change and on, on the global pandemic. But this can only happen when you actually listen to workers and firing workers for speaking up isn't the answer. Marn? I would totally agree with what Emily said and then add that, you know, not only do we need to, not only do they need to be listening to um, everyone from the bottom up, I would love to see better representation at the top. Bring more voices, voices, of, voices from people of color, voices from women, voices from, that come from your worker population directly from bring them in to the senior leadership discussions so that they are there when those discussions happen. Can you imagine how that discussion with David Zaplowski talking about Chris Smalls would have gone differently if there had been a worker re representative in the room? There are corporations now that have SVPs of, of ethics. Amazon has no, no investment at that level for for justice and ethics and and doing what's right for their workers, doing what's right for the planet, and then thereby doing what's right for the future and for all of us. I have one last question for both of you. Um, neither of you are working for Amazon anymore. You're clearly committed to this cause. So what will you be doing going forward besides talking on podcasts? There's a lot of interest from Congress. There will be hearings. Are you going to be testifying? Have you been in touch with Congress, with regulators? What's next for both of you? Emily, go ahead and start. I think that's a really 
interesting and good point that you bring up because corporations like Amazon are, are really getting to the level of power that governments have. But in government, we can we can vote them out when we want to, or we can we have the kind of freedom of speech to speak up if we don't think something's right. They can't, you know, kill us as citizens. They can't like fire us as citizens. We're always going to be citizens. And so I think it's incredibly important to realize the power that and really one of the only and best leverage points that we have are for workers being able to speak out. And and we see that that there's, you know, we see when pilots don't have that ability, when Boeing engineers don't have that ability, or nurses, when all of these kind of workers aren't able to stand up and speak up for not only their patients or customers, but you know, their fellow workers, that, that's not only dangerous for those workers, but it's dangerous for the larger public as well. And so, you know, at this time, I'm, I'm taking a step back to really reflect on how I can use my heart and my being and all of the things that I care about and my talents toward um, pushing the climate justice movement forward. So I'm still figuring that out at this time. Maren? You know, we wouldn't even be able to be here talking to you today if we still worked at Amazon. So in some ways, being fired from Amazon has given us more ability to you know, amplify our own stories as well as amplify and, and stand with the warehouse workers who are trying to speak up. Amazon Employees for Climate Justice, the, the, the internal group, is stronger than ever. It's never going away, and uh, Amazon isn't going away. So we need to continue to have a group within Amazon that is holding Amazon accountable to the promises they've already made and keep pushing them to make more aggressive promises, uh, whether it comes to the climate crisis or to workers' rights. I think Emily and I both feel passionately that, and we felt this way all along, that there's we have such a short time. The, the climate crisis is already upon us in the same ways that we didn't have choices with COVID to, you know, we never would have imagined we could shut down the economy for several months. Well, very shortly, we're going to have no choice with the climate crisis as well. People say we can't possibly get to uh, net neutral by uh, 2030. Well, we may not have that choice. It very well may be forced upon us, and we need to get to get on a path to 1.5 degrees warming. Currently, we're on the path to three degrees warming or more. Mm -hmm. So the urgency is absolutely going to be driving both of us to, to make changes wherever we can, from wherever we can, as, mo as, as strongly as we can. This is the time where we need to deeply care about one another. There was a quote that I came across from doing um, climate work that actually came out of the women's suffrage movement in the UK, and that is, courage calls to courage everywhere. And this is the time that we're in right now where we each need to be our best selves, our bravest selves, because the times required of it of us. Well, Emily and Marin, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. Your story is and accounts are something that I think a lot of people are going to be interested in. Um, all of us are so reliant on Amazon. It's important to know what goes on uh, to get those packages to our house. So thanks for joining us. And um, we hope we wish you both well. Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. 
We'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We now have with us the former governor of Washington, former commerce secretary and former U.S. ambassador to China, Gary Locke. Ambassador Locke, welcome to Skullduggery. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. So you were uh, in the news of late when you popped up in a Trump campaign ad attacking Joe Biden for his ties to China, in which the ad shows uh, Biden meeting with a number of Chinese officials. And in the middle, it shows Biden greeting you. And the ad, of course, fails to point out that you were the American ambassador to China, not a Chinese government official. What was your reaction to that ad? Well, it's just it was so offensive. I mean, uh, it's if you're going to criticize the vice president uh, for his, you know, uh, being cozy with Chinese government officials. I mean, that's all politics. The president himself is is on record saying so many nice things about the Chinese president, the Chinese government and and hosting him at his resort. and having lavish dinners and toasting and things like that. But if you're going to go around showing the vice president Biden meeting with all these Chinese government officials, you don't include a U.S. government official. And and it was just so frustrating and, and outlandish and, and outrageous because it just perpetuates this notion that many ethnic groups have faced that if we look different than Caucasians, the broad spectrum of Americans, then somehow we are still tied to the land of our ancestors that were still not really American, that were really foreigners. Uh, and that's what's so frustrating about it. And, uh, you know, it's happened to different ethnic groups, uh, Japanese Americans, so many born in the United States, and yet they were rounded up during World War II and put in incarceration internment camps on the grounds that they were still loyal to Japan, even though the sons joined the United States Army and was part of the most decorated military unit in U.S. military history. And so that type of stereotyping and, and just continues, and that's so frustrating. Did you reach out to the uh, Trump campaign and ask him to take it down? Well, I think they pretty much took it down on their own because it kind of backfired because it focused on the merits of the ad. And then critics then showed all the pictures of the president himself having lavish meetings with the Chinese government officials and toasting them and saying nice things about the Chinese government officials. So in some ways, the controversy kind of put more scrutiny on the merits of their ad and showed that uh, the president himself was doing the very same things that Vice President Biden was accused of doing. So I think they took it down pretty quickly themselves. By the way, Ambassador Locke, this, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, your father, you talked about people joining the military, your father was part of the D-Day invasion and uh, also part of the Battle of the Bulge. Is that right? Yeah, my father was in the 5th Armored Division and and, uh, landed on the shores of Normandy just a few days right after D-Day. And then all the troops were vying for the fun, the honor of liberating Paris, but uh, the 5th Armored Division received orders under Gen- from General Patton to race to Berlin to try to beat the Russians to Berlin. And, of course, on the way, uh, they encountered the stiff German resistance and 
lot of that was documented in such films and as Band of Brothers and things like that. And, and as my son and I watched that series, Band of Brothers, they came across all these cities and locales and battles that my dad was involved in. And so I said, oh, my gosh, because dad, like so many people of the greatest generation, never talked about World War II. Yeah. And of course, this ad came in this context where, you know, we've seen a surge of of anti-Chinese sentiment in this country, racist or or xenophobic incidents on the rise being tracked by the ADL and other organizations, people yelling, you know, go back to China, references to the the Chinese virus, which, of course, is what the president has branded it, the Kung Kung flu, um, other really offensive names for the virus. Asian-owned stores being vandalized. How worried are you about this uptick in anti-Asian xenophobia? And do you think that the uh, the federal government is really uh, taking it seriously and, and doing anything about it or doing enough about it? Well, it is very, very discouraging. And anytime you have uh, economic hardship or, as we're now seeing, public health hardships, um, there is a tendency to blame other people. We saw it, uh, animosity toward Japan and, and other Asian Americans, even if they were not of Japanese ancestry. Many years ago, uh, when uh, Detroit was having a problem and, and Japan's economy was very, very strong, we're seeing that now with the rising economic uh, progress of, of China. And now with the coronavirus, you're having all these antagonistic acts and discrimination and racism targeted against not just Chinese Americans, but all Asian Americans. Uh, And again, all Asian Americans are lumped in together. Uh, And that's really unfortunate. Um, We really need people to be coming together and uniting to fight this virus, to keep it from spreading and to reduce the number of deaths. And we need the federal government to take a leadership role in uh, saying, you know, this is not the you cannot blame Asian Americans who are here. And in fact, the epidemic, uh, the pandemic on the East Coast was spread uh, by Europeans who had traveled to China or had entertained visitors from China and, and elsewhere. Now, certainly, we need to have a full accounting of how this all happened. Uh, when did the Chinese uh, know about it? Uh, what are the real numbers, et cetera, et cetera? But right now, we need to be focusing on stopping this thing, uh, flattening the curve here in America and all around the world, and reducing the number of deaths. We need people to come together and having the federal government not taking a a leadership role in urging calm and being tolerant and not accusing different ethnic groups is is most unfortunate. Right after the September 11th attack against the United States, President Bush went around saying, we cannot blame and uh, have any acts of violence against Muslim Americans in the United States. And so I wish the the president, President Trump, would uh, issue similar proclamations and make similar statements. So that said, there is a legitimate and growing debate about China's role and its handling of the virus. Uh, Last week, I think uh, Bill Gates gave a talk saying that it was a distraction to focus on Chinese behavior while the pandemic was as severe as it is. And pushing back on that, Josh Rogan, a columnist for The Washington Post, wrote, and yet the Chinese Communist Party is still working full time to cover up information about the outbreak and the Chinese government's own failures. By so doing, it continues to threaten the health and lives of Americans. That can't be ignored. And he goes on to write, the Chinese government misled the world about the virus early on. It 
manipulated statistics to downplay the outbreak severity, silenced whistleblowers, spread misinformation and disinformation, and censored science that didn't fit the official narrative. Do you agree? Well, I very much uh, believe that China has to be held accountable. They certainly mishandled this uh, and detained some of the doctors who gave early warnings about this. And uh, that doctor, in fact, uh, was arrested, uh, detained for several hours, had to sign uh, a promise not to spread uh, false rumors or to uh, incite the people. And then he went on to treat many, many people and then got the virus himself and died and is now a hero in China. So China certainly did a lot of things wrong. And, you know, over time, we're going to have to have health officials and others figure out exactly how it started, where it started, the real number of people who got sick and uh, the real numbers of the of the people who, who died. But the, the point is that the World Health Organization sounded the alarm, even if China did not. And many countries, including the United States, got those same warnings from the WHO. And all those other countries acted on it. We did not. And look at places like Taiwan and South Korea. Taiwan, which is a little over 100 miles away from mainland China, in which they have many more people going back and forth for tourism and business. Taiwan jumped on the warnings from the WHO immediately, and they were able to control it and have very few deaths. Yes, it's a much smaller country by population, but if you were to extrapolate it, it would, the number of deaths in Taiwan would be the equivalent of less than 100 in America. And yet what, we're at over 70,000 deaths right now in the United States. And for all the time that, that the United States was saying, oh, it's no big deal, and the president was playing golf and said, this is nothing to be afraid of, other countries using the same information were acting on it and controlling it and preventing people from getting sick. Ambassador, you were you were the ambassador during the Obama years, or at least the first couple of years of Obama's term. Give us some insight into how you think the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party has been dealing with this. I mean, do you believe that they have been genuinely trying to control the virus in as, you know, a robust a way as they could? Or have they looked at this as somehow a threat to their own stability? Well, I think at first they mishandled it and underplayed it, ignored it. Because in China, People don't want to shut down factories and shut down cities. The local government officials are always wary of passing on bad news to Beijing. Their political careers depend on good numbers and uh, you know keeping keeping things calm and uh, keeping away bad information or or you know discouraging news from reaching the capital. I mean, these guys, these mayors, and these uh, leaders of their provinces are not natives of their localities like the politicians in America. You know, you grew up in Texas and you're the, or, uh, you know, you, you lived in Colorado all your life or like myself, born and raised in the state of Washington and you run for local office. These leaders of major cities and all the provinces are like military commanders and they move from city to city, province to province. And their upward mobility, like a military commander of a U.S. Army base, depends on you know their performance and 
having good numbers and good stats. So you don't want to, uh, you know, tell Beijing that, oh, wow, I got this big uh, virus going around and it's uh, making a lot of people sick and maybe killing people. So they, but once the news got out, boy, China really jumped on it and closed down entire cities and factories were all closed. Even now, they're only starting to go back to normal, but it's had a huge impact on their economy and, you know, tens and tens of millions of people out of work. Same thing with the rest of the world as we're now beginning to see. So once it became pretty apparent how severe this thing was, they jumped on it pretty aggressively. The problem is that so many other people um, around the world don't want to shut down factories, don't want to keep people home. And I can understand that. I, you know, we've been all under stay-at-home orders and directives for the past month and a half. And boy, you want to get out and about. You know, you want to, you know, go shopping and have dinner parties with your friends. So, you know, the governors in, in America were really the ones who stepped forward and made the hard decisions to close schools and close down factories and shut down malls and restaurants. And they're taking a lot of grief for that. There's a lot of pressure on them right now to <clears throat> open things back up. But at the same time, we have not yet controlled this virus and we're still having a, a huge surge in deaths. So I, I let's, let's really focus on what we need to do here in America, and we'll get all the fact-finding done uh, sooner. I mean, it, it'll all be done in terms of what did China do or not do, and what are the real numbers, et cetera, et cetera. But we need to focus on, are we responding? Are we getting enough medical equipment, uh, protective equipment for our hospitals? How are we going to open our colleges and uh, uh, campuses in the fall if there's a surge in the virus again? What, are we going to close down public schools and uh, have our kids studying from home? What about the stores and the restaurants? And what will happen to people who are out of work? Will they have enough money to pay the rent, pay the bills or the mortgage? Ambassador, uh, the Trump campaign is not alone in using China and criticisms of the Chinese government uh, in this, you know, for this pandemic for political purposes. And the Biden campaign, and uh, I believe you've endorsed Vice President Biden, the Biden campaign rolled out one of its own ads in which they attacked uh, President Trump for being soft on China and talked about how Trump rolled over for the Chinese. I think that was the exact language. And I just wonder if you think there's a, a danger that that kind of kind of anti-China rhetoric in a presidential campaign in this very charged atmosphere doesn't risk fueling more anti-Asian xenophobia. Are you concerned that uh, China becoming kind of a political football in this presidential campaign could increase xenophobia toward uh, Asian Americans or Asians in this country? Well, every uh, presidential campaign seems to bring out China as a topic or as an object of political ads. And, uh, you know, it happened uh, with President Clinton when he was running for, for president. And, and the whole topic of America's position toward China, given all the problems that we have with China, always seemed to be brought up. Uh, in every presidential campaign. And, and America does have very legitimate grievances in terms of the trade policies, the economic policies, the human rights policy of China, the protection of intellectual property and the rule of law. So that's all fair game. And I would just hope that all campaigns, whether they're candidates running for Congress, the Senate, governors, and, and president, uh, while they focus on the policy issues and grievances that we have with China, 
that we differentiate between actions of the Chinese government versus the people of China, and certainly Asian Americans and Chinese Americans here in America who, you know, who have given their blood, sweat, and tears for this country, whether it's building, finishing the transcontinental railroad, working in the lumber and the, and the coal mines of the United States to serving in the United States Army or military forces, or creating inventions that have basically, you know, given us stop the death uh, due to AIDS and things like that. So, you know, Asian Americans, Chinese Americans are contributing members of America, have given their blood and sweat and tears for the prosperity of America. And I hope that all politicians, Democrat, Republican, whatever level of office, differentiate between the policies of the government of China versus Chinese Americans and Asian Americans. Just a very quick follow-up on that, which is the risk that with this kind of rhetoric and China, the Chinese government being criticized and kind of vilified, you know, we obviously have to work very closely with the Chinese. The relationship is uh, incredibly important. But even in this pandemic itself, the Chinese may develop the first COVID-19 vaccine. You know, even if we develop it, we may depend on China to produce hundreds of millions of doses of that vaccine because they have the production capacity that we don't have. There's PPE and the leverage that the Chinese have over the supply chain, which, you know, they could shut off the supply. So how much of a risk do you think there is in going too far and the Chinese taking retaliatory action uh, that could really have a severe impact in terms of dealing with this crisis? Well, that's why I think that we all have to be very, very careful in terms of of how we handle and manifest the policy differences that we have with each other, whether it's with China, whether it's with France or Germany or Russia or other countries, and especially with China. We need China to keep buying our our agricultural products, to buy Boeing airplanes, uh, to buy many of our manufactured goods, including our medical equipment like MRI machines and X-ray machines. And those purchases by the Chinese people and Chinese companies create jobs for Americans. China is our number one export destination for what we grow on our farms and process and the processing plants. So many millions of jobs in America depend on a prosperous China, a a rising middle class who will buy made in America goods and uh, American services creating jobs. So we are dependent on each other and we need to be able to articulate voice our concerns about policies of China, whether it's their military expansion, uh, whether it's human rights or their trade policies, but in a way that uh, recognizes that we're all in this together. I mean, both countries need to be reducing their carbon emissions uh, to uh, reduce the impact of of global warming and climate change. Uh, China is really trying to do a lot, but if America does nothing, then all the efforts of China are for naught. And the same thing vice versa. If America were to substantially reduce its carbon emissions and China did nothing, then all of our sacrifices in the United States and around the world will amount to nothing. So we've got to really continue uh, these partnerships on medical research, fighting piracy off the coast of Africa, uh, joint exercises in responding to natural disasters around the world. China right now is... uh, contributing more members to UN peacekeeping forces than any other country in the world. So uh, we've got to continue cooperation wherever we can. At the same time, 
addressing these major differences that we have. We have to be very honest about our differences, but we also have to recognize there are many opportunities for cooperation that will benefit people on both sides of the Pacific. I have to say, a lot, of, a lot of people listening to you, and you talk about how we have to voice our concerns about China's human rights policy, about its theft of intellectual property, about its hacking operations, about its cover-up on the virus, and say, yeah, voicing concerns is fine. It's something that uh, American officials have been doing for years with China, including one while you were in Beijing, to little to no effect. Uh, it hasn't changed Chinese behavior on any of these areas. Just recently, just as one example, they kicked out American journalists from the Washington Post, New York Times and Wall Street Journal. They don't want Western reporters reporting on what they are doing. I, voicing Does voicing concerns really have any impact? Can you point to any example where you or other American officials have voiced concerns and it has actually changed Chinese behavior? And if it doesn't, then what steps should we take to make it clear that some behavior is unacceptable? Oh, I'm not just saying that we voice concerns. I'm just saying that we, we, we need to continue those uh, expressions of our concern, but I'm not saying that we don't do anything about it. Uh, for instance, on the trade dispute with China, you know, the, the tariffs that America imposed on Chinese goods coming into the United States hurt American consumers. And American consumers were paying, according to even the Fed and, and U.S. government officials within the Trump administration, and, and even the Wall Street Journal and others were saying that it was costing the average American household anywhere from 800 to $1,000 more per year because of the increased price of uh, the, the shoes that we buy, the clothes, the, the, the games, the sporting goods, and things like that. So I've, I've never been saying we don't do anything about it and just voice concerns. But what I've been saying, for instance, is that we should have been teaming up with all of the other foreign countries around the world that have similar concerns about China's trade and economic policies and impose restrictions on Chinese operations in all of our countries. So for instance, if Microsoft and Amazon have to have a Chinese partner in order to uh, do business in China or to offer cloud computing services in China, then the Chinese companies should face the same restrictions when they operate in our countries. And if so many sectors of the Chinese economy are off limits to foreign investment, which then, uh, and you can't even invest in it, then some of those sectors should be off limits to Chinese investment all around the world, not just in the United States. So for instance, when America imposed these tariffs on let's say Chinese toys or Chinese clothes and shoes coming into the United States, Americans paid a higher price, but the Europeans did not impose tariffs on those same goods. And so those Chinese products were sold to Europeans. And then because we impose tariffs on Chinese goods coming into the United States, the Chinese retaliated by imposing tariffs, which is a huge tax, on the goods going into China from the United States. But they did not impose a tax or a tariff, a surcharge on goods, similar goods coming to China or going from Canada to China or Germany to China or France to China. So those Canadian, German, French goods were cheaper for the Chinese consumer and the Chinese companies compared to American goods. So whose products did they buy? They bought French, Canadian, Germans. They bought Brazilian soybeans. 
not American soybeans. Th- that type of unilateral action hurts America and benefits many other countries. We should be attacking these issues or addressing these issues with our allies in a concerted fashion. Ambassador, what do you make of the um, theory that the source of the virus uh, was a Chinese laboratory in Wuhan as opposed to animal-to-human transition in a Chinese wet market? I'll let the scientists figure that one out. You know, I think the Trump administration is trying to put pressure on intelligence agencies to make that finding. Whereas most of the U.S. intelligence agencies right now are saying, oh, doesn't seem like it's coming from a lab. There's no other evidence coming from scientists from around the world saying it came from a lab, that it was a broken down procedures in a laboratory that somehow got out into the community and, and affected the general population. But again, we'll let that, you know, we'll let the truth come out and, and people can dig all they want. But in the but, meantime, in the meantime, what are we doing to slow down the spread of the virus in America and to save lives. Let me ask you about uh, the state of Washington, which at one point early on was considered a hot spot for the virus. When I look at the figures today, uh, Washington seems to be in the middle of states. I think 16,694 cases, according to the latest account, 880 deaths in the state, a lot less than um, states like New York, California, and a lot of others that, and New Jersey. What is this? You're talking to us from Seattle. Give us a sense of what the situation is is in the state of Washington right now? And did state officials do the right thing, take steps that other states should have taken earlier? Well, I think that uh, I have to commend our governor for being very courageous and uh, really trying to bring calm uh, when the the deaths were just exploding and primarily coming out of a healthcare facility, a, a nursing home. And a lot of the workers there were getting infected and some of the First responders, you know, the aid uh, aid car unit uh, drivers and and firefighters and medics who sometimes responded to that nursing home and uh, transported them the patients to the hospitals. They came down with the virus, but early on, uh, companies were encouraged to send people home and have them work from home. The schools were closed down pretty early statewide. Colleges, campuses were basically shut down and and restaurants and everything else uh, closed. So it's been tough economically. A lot of small businesses are hurting and a lot of them will not ever come back, even when uh, the virus is is, uh, under control. Uh, Various restaurant chains, uh, one operator uh, says that he's got 13 restaurants. He'll probably, when it's all said and done, only reopen two. That's a lot of hundreds and hundreds of people just for that one company that will be out of work permanently. So we have to worry about the human toll, not just the health toll, but the long-term economic toll. But the number of cases is dropping dramatically. Deaths are still continuing, but not uh, as uh, sharply as they were in the past. And unfortunately, I had a, a, a dear friend who passed away from the virus. And so it's hit home. It's hit home. And so, you know, uh, restricting all my activities, staying home as much as possible, going to the grocery store only when necessary. And buying up for the whole week or the next two weeks and throwing things in the freezer. So, um, and wearing masks everywhere we're going, we're wearing masks. And so uh, it's, it's hard, but really the governors uh, of many of our states, Democrat and Republican, deserve a lot of credit and recognition for really trying to lead in this crisis uh, in the absence of strong direction from White House. 
Um, and these Republican Democratic governors were following the advice of their local health officials and the officials from the CDC and the FDA. And these government officials uh, are taking a lot of heat under a lot of pressure, but they need to be commended. Spoken as a former governor, praising your uh, fellow governors. Uh, Well, Ambassador and Governor Locke, I want to thank you for uh, joining us today and um, sharing your insights and uh, stay safe there in Seattle. Thank you very much. Uh, It's it's a we say that we're in Seattle, Washington, the better Washington, the real Washington. <laughs> okay. And uh, and I'm here in the lesser Washington. Um, all right. Talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks to former U.S. Ambassador to China, Gary Locke, and former Amazon employees, Emily Cunningham and Marin Costa, for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Talk to you soon.